Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. There are 140 million poor and low-income people in the United States. Internationally, there are many, many more. Every day, poverty takes an enormous toll on all who experience it. Poverty, many of us know, is a form of violence. There's not much that is wrong with society or even with the environment that can truly be resolved as long as poverty exists anywhere. The economic and social costs of poverty and the injustices of systemic racism, militarism, and ecological devastation are unsustainable. The United States has the wealth to end these interlocking injustices, so why isn't ending poverty a priority for policymakers? Why can millions of dollars be found, indeed billions be found, for war and occupation, but not even to extend a program that uplifted millions of children out of poverty? The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, encouraged by the welfare rights movement, called for the first Poor People's Campaign, but he was assassinated months after that call. Sadly, he did not live to see the thousands who heeded his call. The Poor People's Campaign was motivated by a desire for economic justice, the idea that all people should have what they need to live in dignity. Dr. King was pushed by impoverished women in the National Welfare Rights Organization who confronted him for not understanding what their lives and others living in poverty were like. Dr. King had grown up in a relatively comfortable middle-class household. After meeting with the National Welfare Rights Organization, Dr. King shifted his focus to include poverty. This after he had already expanded from civil rights to taking an anti-war position. Dr. King evolved to confronting the interlocking injustices of racism, poverty, and war. The first Poor People's Campaign was multiracial. It demanded economic and human rights for all impoverished people across race and nationality in the United States. And after presenting a set of demands to Congress and executive agencies, they set up a 3,000-person protest camp on the Washington Mall, indeed the first occupation of Washington, D.C. that we know of, where they stayed for six weeks in the spring of 1968. They were eventually evicted by law enforcement. But four years ago, growing out of the Moral Mondays movement that took hold in the south of the United States, Reverend William Barber III, now Bishop Barber, and the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, a multiracial team, restarted the Poor People's Campaign, this time named the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Since then, they have grown into a massive movement with bases in 43 states across the U.S. And on June 18th, 2022, the Poor People's Campaign held a Poor People's and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls. 
tens of thousands of people gathered from across the country to participate and many more watched online. Participants and testifiers included those impacted by poverty, racism, the war economy, ecological devastation, and the nation's twisted moral narrative. They also included union leaders and union rank and file members, faith leaders, activists, and advocates, all declaring their ongoing commitment to a moral movement to fully address poverty and low wealth from the bottom up. Today on Sojourner Truth, we are bringing you part one um, of in a series that will bring you voices from that event. Pacifica Radio was there covering the event, so you're also going to hear voices from the Pacifica Radio coverage. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. And now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigned today following a rash of scandals at Number 10 Downing Street that have led to a wave of cabinet-level departures in the ruling Conservative Party. More from Feature Story News' Simon Marks. He spoke outside Number 10 Downing Street after another dizzying morning of further resignations from that government, but also activity to fill many of the vacant positions. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. He insists he will remain in office, leading a caretaker administration, possibly until the autumn, if that's how long it takes the party to select a successor. But he made it clear that after 24 very uncertain hours, he does now foresee a change at the top. I know that there will be many people who are relieved and... Uh, Perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. From Feature Story News in Washington, I'm Simon Marks. Investigators in Highland Park, Illinois, are looking into whether past incidents involving shooting suspect Robert Cremo could have set off red flags that may have prevented him from legally getting his hands on the weapon he used to murder seven people and injure dozens of others at a 4th of July parade. One focus is on the state's so-called red flag law, which is intended to temporarily take away guns from people who potentially could be violent. Nineteen states in the District of Columbia have such laws. Illinois State Attorney Eric Reinhardt says the state's red flag laws are effective, but the public needs to be educated about them, and laws on firearms also need to be strengthened. It allows individuals to stabilize their treatment, excuse me, stabilize their behavior, seek treatment, and access other resources that our community must invest in to give those who need help. But separate from these red flag laws, which are very powerful in Illinois, we should also ban assault weapons in Illinois and beyond. The court order called a firearms restraining order also bars them from buying guns. 
Less than three years ago, police went to Cremo's home following a call from a family member who said he was threatening to kill everyone there. That's according to Christopher Cavelli, a spokesman for the Lake County Major Crime Task Force. Police confiscated 16 knives, a dagger, and a sword, but police said there was no sign he had any guns at the time back in 2019. Earlier that year, police also responded to a reported suicide attempt by Cremo. The World Health Organization reports that over the last two weeks, global COVID-19 cases are up 30 percent. The WHO also says that the world remains unprepared to handle the next outbreak. Violet Below reports. World Health Organization Director Dr. Tedros Adhanom said the Omicron subvariants BA4 and BA5 are driving the surge of COVID cases in the US and Europe. In India, there's a sublineage of BA2.75. Dr. Tedros urged countries to resume vaccination and COVID treatments campaigns, especially in low and middle income countries like India. New treatments, especially promising new oral antivirals, are still not reaching low- and middle-income countries, depriving whole populations that need them. The BA5 subvariant is now causing about half the cases in California. 38 of the state's 58 counties are now in what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention designates as having a high level of community spread. I'm Violet Bellu, Pacifica Radio, KPFA. California's aid in dying law could be halted tomorrow in a federal court hearing. More from Public News Service's Suzanne Potter. The Christian Medical and Dental Association is asking the judge to put Senate Bill 380 on hold while the group's lawsuit proceeds. The law allows terminally ill patients with less than six months to live to get a prescription to end their suffering if they choose to use it. In Oceanside, 35-year-old Andrew Flack just got his from a pharmacy in case the judge grants a preliminary injunction. I like having this option because there is a tremendous amount of anxiety that comes with dying from cancer and also the day-to-day pain that you experience. So knowing that I have a way out versus the inevitable suffering, it's relieving. This is Suzanne Potter. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines. We now go to the voices from the Poor People's Campaign's Mass Poor People's and Low-Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls that took place in Washington, D.C. on June 18, 2022. In this part of our coverage, you will hear from a variety of speakers, including Bishop William Barber, uh, Phyllis Bennis, Reverend Sakena Hamlin, and testimonies from poor and low-income people from across the country. Let's go to that coverage right now. You will now continue to hear the voices of this movement, followed by Bishop Barber giving us our call to purpose. Let us hear the voices. At one time, poverty was a temporary condition. You were on a down slope for a minute, but you could bounce back up. We can't bounce back up today. It's permanent. We're not going back to the factory and building cars and trucks like we once did. I worked 41 years in the coal mines. I have black lung, and it's just unfathomable what these poor coal miners That's right. have to go through in order to get what they have worked for and deserved. 
I want to tell you about my daughter, Venus. Venus started her journey about 14 months before she was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. Having no primary care doctor and no medical insurance, Venus visited the emergency room in Montgomery so many times that we lost count. Venus had to wait to be approved for every medical procedure she received and was waiting for approval for a CAT scan when she relapsed into a coma and she finally got the CAT scan that she needed and they found two tumors in her brain. One had ruptured. Uh, the next day we gathered around Venus um, to say our goodbyes and we unplugged the tube and Venus died. No parents should have, in America, should have to bury their pet, their child for a lack of medical expense. No person should be not denied medical care because they don't carry a plastic card. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I was raised poor. My only chance of going to college was joining the Army. Now, I'm also a Kansas farmer's wife. Kansas farmers are committing suicide at a far greater rate than the national average. I'm the one of the many faces representing homelessness and poverty here in New York State. There are many others like me that are sleeping in shelters every night, thousands like us, that can't afford to find low-income housing. We live in one of the richest countries in the world, and yet people are homeless. People are not poor because they're lazy and they don't want to work. People are poor because our government is depriving us of living wages, health care, and public assistance. That ain't right. I'm 46 years old. I've lived in poverty here in West Virginia every day of my life. And I'm working. I am working poor with a bachelor's degree. I'm doing the best I can with what I have. Hi, my name is Pamela Rush. I'm from Lowndes County, Alabama. And I live in a mobile home with my two kids. They charge me over $114,000 on a mobile home. They're falling apart. And then all animals coming in my house. Possum. They trapped about four possum in my house. Cats and stuff. And I got raw sewage. I don't have no, no money on pop. And I have to travel back and forth to Birmingham to take my daughter with the CPAP machine. Don't have a car and don't have no way to take her. We are demanding that we stop the war on our poor. Our brothers and sisters are sleeping on the streets. For a country this rich to have so many people poor, it's immoral and it's wrong. Our backs are against the wall and we got no choice but to push. Hello, I'm Pam Garrison, tribe chair of the West Virginia Poor People's Campaign. I stand here with righteous anger, I stand here as one of the 140 million poor low-wage workers. I've worked two and three jobs my whole life. I stand here with the spirit of Fannie Lou Hamer. We mourned our dead last night. Those of y'all that came and helped and joined us online and in, in person, we mourned our dead. Well, it's time that we fight like hell for our living now. You are my people. I want to tell you what they stole from me. Just one thing they stole from me. They stole my motherhood. They stole my children's childhood. 
my children, the memories they have of me growing up. And you know everybody remembers your childhood if you don't remember nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm absent in my kids' memories. They remember mom always working. They don't remember me there helping homework. They don't remember me putting them to bed because I was trying to keep a roof over their head and food on the table and a pair of shoes on their feet. And no matter how hard I worked, that's it. No matter how hard, it was never enough. And now I have to live. My daughters are grown with me absent in their minds. And that breaks my heart. It kills me. And that's something they can't give me back. And I don't want any more mothers and fathers to hear this when your children are grown. That they don't remember you there. I got to tell you, this is a declaration. This ain't the begin. This ain't the ending. This is the beginning. That's right. And I got news for them. If you're standing in our way, you better pack your bags. We are going to hold you accountable. We are told in our constitution that is our job to hold them accountable. That's right. That's right. When they take and steal your baby's milk, won't even pass enough money to bring your baby some milk, remember them. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget. And you help me work for these elections, and we're going to put people in there that don't represent us. Yes. Give it up for Pam Morrison. We won't be silent anymore. That's it. We're going to return to the stage where Reverend Barber is addressing the crowd, which is becoming massive. ...of poverty and bound up by the interlocking realities of systemic racism, voter suppression, refusal to pay a living minimum wage, bad tax policy, ecological devastation, denial of health care, inequitable educational opportunity, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. Here we are today. This level of poverty and greed in this the richest nation in the history of the world constitutes a moral crisis and a fundamental failure of the policies of greed. These numbers and interlocking injustices are not just about debates between right and left and moderate. No, this language and categories are too puny for what we face. They represent a crisis of democracy, a shared failure to center poor and low-wealth people, the very people who are the greatest moral leaders and survivors in our society and the true bellwether of our well-being. But there is something else that is even more grotesque. The regressive policies which produce 140 million poor and low-wealth people are not benign. They are forms of policy murder. We know that prior to the pandemic, poor people died at a rate 
of 700 people a day, 250,000 a year. Poor people have been two to five times more likely to die from COVID during this pandemic so far. And we know this can't simply be explained away by vaccination results. It's related to the discrimination in our policies toward poor and low wealth people. On Monday of this week, the National Academy of Science said more than 330,000 lives could have been saved in during the pandemic if we had simply had a policy of universal health care for all people. A policy which is a human right that should never be connected to your job, but always connected to your humanity. Because many of the people you see here today know these realities, know this pain, this injustice, and this death from personal experience. We knew that we must gather here. We must have, over and over again, a moral meeting in these streets. We are not unlike our forerunners who sought to mend every flaw of this nation. The abolitionists, those who fought against lynching, those who have stood for families, those who have stood for labor rights, those who have stood for civil rights and women's rights and LGBTQ rights and the right for women to control their own bodies, those who have stood for peace in the time of war, those who have demanded that children be treated right, and those who have demanded just immigration policies in a nation full of immigrants. All of these people have come to these same streets to openly expose the moral crises throughout our history. This sacred moral procession has been required at various points in our history to exorcise the demons of greed and hate and racism in our society. They have all recognized that there comes a time we must have a moral meeting, and such is this moment now. This is why we are here, and we won't be silent anymore. We come to this mass Poor People's Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls because we must meet this moment. We must meet in the streets. We must meet at the ballot box. We must meet at the political suites of this nation. We have to cry loud from the pulpits and the public square. And we know we're on solid ground from which to raise our critique. Our great moral and constitutional traditions, they give us solid ground to declare that we must establish justice and ensure equal protection under the law for all people. We know that when the nation is moving away from the principles of life, liberty, justice, the pursuit of happiness for all people, and there's been a long train of abuses, that, and the nation has become more profitable for a few and less perfect for others, we must correct the nation and we can't be silent anymore. We know 
that our greatest moral traditions in scripture call us to stand up, call us to mourn and refuse to be quiet. Is it not Isaiah that said, woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children their prey? Holy Scripture from every place calls us to repentance in a time of crisis. From Amos to Isaiah to the Gospels of Jesus, we are told we must gather a remnant of people who are willing to cry in the public square. We know that there are moments when in the anointing we must declare good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind. We must remind every nation that no matter how great she claims her gross domestic product is or how powerful her military is, every nation is under divine judgment until they fully care and fully love for the least of these, the hungry, the outcast, and the left out. And we know that every religious tradition from Judaism to Islam to Unitarianism not only believe the divine moral of the universe at lift, exists, but moves us by the Spirit to bend the moral arc with the weight of our nonviolent actions. Today, make no mistake, America, we are determined to bend the moral arc right here once again in America. We are resolved not to stop until we no longer have to fight. We are resolved not to stop until we no longer have breath to breathe or strength to give. We are the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. And together with our allies, we won't be silent anymore. We are, not, we are not here to beg, but to demand. What we're demanding is not radical, it's simply right. We've come to put a face and a voice on these numbers of poverty to show that behind them, inside them, are real people and real lives. They are us, we are them, and we won't be silent anymore. The very fact that these realities exist means, Dr. West, that we are engaged in a moment that is constitutionally inconsistent, morally indefensible, politically insensitive, economic, and economically insane. As the great prophet of the Harlem Renaissance declared, we must take back our mighty land again. America has never been America to me, but we swear this oath that America will be. We must say with our bodies, with our voices, with our organizing, with our preaching, with our standing, even with our suffering and our sacrifices, that we won't be silent or unseen or unheard anymore. As long as there are 140 million poor and low-wealth people in this country, and we know it doesn't have to be this way, we won't be silent anymore. As long as there are 87 million people who are uninsured or underinsured, 
and everybody in the Congress gets free health insurance while they vote against us to have the same thing. We won't be silent anymore. As long as caving to the lobbying of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, 49 Republicans and two Democrats refused to vote fairly and denied 32 million people just last year a $15 an hour minimum living wage. We won't be silent anymore. As long as we know this nation will never really deal with inflation and recession until she does right by the poor and low wealth of this country. As long as we have the hypocrites and their audacity to call people essential workers during the pandemic and then treat them like they're expendable when it comes to health care and wages. As long as two Democrats and four Republicans block child income tax credits, lift folk up for a few months out of poverty, and then drop them right back to hell in poverty, we won't be silent anymore. As long as people keep asking how much will it cost, rather than ask the real cost question, how much does it cost for things to stay like they are? As long as there are the lies of scarcity and the lies we don't know what to do, as long as we have the stealing of native lands and unjust immigration, as long as your health and your income can be determined by who you love, as long as people go to bed hungry, as long as millions of our neighbors are homeless or facing homelessness, as long as four million people can get up every morning and buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water, as long as our military spends twice as much as Iran, Iraq, Russia, and North Korea combined, and we know that just 10% of that bloated military budget could provide health care and public education, we won't be silent anymore. As long as 55 million people are facing voter suppression, let us be clear, we are not simply here for a day. This assembly is to declare the full commitment of a fusion coalition. If you didn't know America, you better ask somebody. We are black, we are brown, we are native, we are Latino, we are Asian, we are young, we are old, we are gay, we are straight, we are trans, we are independent, we are from California to the Carolinas, from Massachusetts to Mississippi, from Georgia to the Great Lakes, from the Apache lands to Alabama to Appalachia, from Montana to Missouri, from Alaska to Arkansas, and we ain't going nowhere. Black and poor whites built the first reconstruction. Over 50 years ago, black and white and people Reverend and Latinos joined people speak, of faith so and followed right the prophetic the servant state. leader, Martin Luther King, Absolutely. and took we'll on racism, back. poverty, and militarism, and a second reconstruction. But now is our time for a third reconstruction. We are not an insurrection, but we are a resurrection. And this is the day 
that the Lord hath made. This is the day that the stones that the builders rejected are coming together to be the cornerstones of a new reality. And so make no mistake, from the State House to the Congress to the White House, this is no one day on and one day off. This is a movement until children are protected, until sick folk are healed, until low-wage workers are paid, until immigrants are treated fairly, until affordable houses are provided, until the atmosphere, the land, and the water are protected, until saving the world and diplomacy and living in peace is more important than blowing up the world. We won't be silent anymore. If we've got to march, we'll march. If we've got to engage in nonviolent direct action, we'll engage. If we've got to give more attention with the media, we'll do it. If we have to ask workers to make election day a labor strike day, as long as God is God, as long as politicians are hurting the people that God won't heal, we say to America, you have made a promise. One nation under God indivisible with liberty and justice for all what a day what a day that will be but until then this promise is non-negotiable and we won't be silent or unseen or unheard anymore We're going to take a short station break. When we return, we will continue to bring you voices from the Poor People's Campaign, Mass Poor People's and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls. Hi, this is Gloria Steinem. This is Joni Mitchell. This is Brother Cornell West, and you are listening to Sojourner Truth with host, my dear sister, Margaret Prescott. The music is from Soundtrack for a Revolution. The song is Eyes on the Prize. The artist is Joss Stone. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check us out on our website on sotrueradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can look for us and like us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. Uh, just look there for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of New Hampshire and internationally, a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners anywhere on the continent of Africa.
we now return to the voices from the Poor People's Campaign June 18th event, which was the Mass Poor People's and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls. So let's go to those voices now. We're now joined also by Phyllis Bennis. Phyllis, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you this morning. Absolutely. Tell me what this day means to you. This is an extraordinary moment in a long campaign that's been long in the planning, but also with the, with the understanding right from the beginning that this was not a culmination. This is a beginning, this is the, the, the middle of a campaign des designed to include poor and low wealth people from all across the country, recognizing the intersections of poverty, racism, militarism, and climate. And making those links means that all of our movements are represented within the Poor People's Campaign. Because what the Poor People's Campaign brought to the issue of poverty was the understanding of you can't just you can't just destroy poverty by itself. You can't destroy poverty in a system like we have here, where 52 cents of every federal discretionary dollar goes directly to the military. You can't destroy poverty when you have poor people living in environmentally destructive conditions. You can't destroy poverty when you have the kind of racialized poverty that we have in this country. That, so you have to attack racism, you have to attack the climate problems, you have to attack militarism if you have any hope of ending poverty. You're with the Institute for Policy Studies. Tell me a little bit more about you. I'm at the Institute for Policy Studies where I work on what we call the New Internationalism Project, which means challenging U.S. wars and empire, challenging the militarization of our communities and the borders, and challenging the distortion of our economy that turns 52 cents of every federal dollar right over to the Pentagon. That means opposing nuclear weapons. It means trying to stop the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, if we had had no wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the so-called global war on terror, we would have people that were still hundreds of thousands, millions of people that would still be alive today around the world. We would have over six trillion dollars to spend at home on things like education and health care and jobs. And instead we've had wars that kill people, that don't keep us safer, and that distort our entire economy. It's a shocking reality that we have in this country the most the most wealthy, the most powerful country that has ever existed in the history of humanity not just the most wealthy and the most powerful today, but the biggest economy, the strongest military that has ever existed in history. That's the reality of our country. And yet, we can't feed babies. We can't get the formula. And the problem is, it's, the, not, it's not a matter of scarcity. There is plenty of money. We saw in the early stages of the COVID crisis that when there was the need... When they have the political when they have will, the political they will, can do it. They have the money. And when they don't have the political will, all we hear is there's no money. Poor people, the 140 million poor and low wealth people in this country are consistently told, we don't have the money to deal with poverty. We don't have the money to give you we jobs. Could cut, we could we cut everybody a check. We could cut everybody a check we, and right. that would be it. People are, people, gas we prices. we build I mean, a know. new factory to make more baby formula Hello. if one of them wasn't working. But you we know, don't do that. I mean, I'm by coastal but I've seen gas in L.A. at $7.55 a gallon, $7.55. And the problem is not the high price of gas, because frankly, if we had a decent, a decent system of mass transportation, we wouldn't be worrying about the price at the gas pump. We would, we would be worried about when's the next 
fast train coming, but we don't have that, so we have to pay individually, each of us, those ridiculous prices. The whole thing is absurd. Again, I want to get back to Bob because he has a unique perspective on the labor movement and the way that the labor movement intersects with this. As you listen to this great music and look at this great crowd and look at all the people, what, what, are, you, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that uh, what we've just heard, the connection between defense issues and our most intimate familial situation. That we have to go back to the historical reality that this follows 50 years after the Poor People's Campaign and all the prophetic words we heard from Dr. King about a death economy. And here we are, five decades later, not able to feed our children. This has to, uh, one of the things, if you dig deep, we have to look at the fact that what happened in that baby formula crisis when workers weren't paid sufficiently enough, they didn't feel courageous enough to talk about the contamination in the plant. What we're seeing now, 50 years later, and this is how at the Institute for Policy Studies, we started working with the Poor People's Campaign specifically to create what was called an audit 50 years later of that question of where are we? How are we doing 50 years after Dr. King's extraordinary effort to create the first Poor People's Campaign? And we, together with the Poor People's Campaign, we drafted a report that was called The Souls of Poor Folk. And we looked at the questions of racism and poverty and militarism and climate and said, where are we now? We're not doing so well. We're not doing so much better than we were 50 years ago. We've got a lot of work to do. Yes, and that's, do. I think, our slogan for going forward. We've got a lot of work to do. I have got someone here who's very special to me. She is Reverend Sakina Hamlin who is a Bennett Bell. So you know it takes a bell to do it well. It takes a bell to do it well. And she's got a posse from Greensboro here. Sakita, tell me why you brought all these folks here. Well, we brought people here, one, because the intergenerational lineage is strong. And one thing that we do know is that we have the opportunity to do something new and creative. The Bible talks about how we can do a new thing, that there are ways in which God is allowing us to actually recreate economic systems, recreate uh, our systems of humanity so that we can actually do what's best for all people, for all families. And that looks like simply this. Joe Biden must cancel at least $50,000 of student loan debt. Yes. That is the only way that we're going to even put a small dent into the racial wealth gap. H.R. 40 must be passed by Congress as well as an executive order. The only thing we're asking folks to do is to have a study commission. And folks seem like they are afraid of even doing that. But I stand on God's word and I know that even as workers are gaining momentum and people are gaining uh, our time together so that they can be a part of union efforts at Starbucks, union efforts uh, at, at <laughs> amen, union efforts even at the United Coal Mining, Coal Workers. There's an effort going on right now, the longest strike in Alabama history is going on right now in Bessemer, Alabama, and the Alabama Poor People's Campaign, the United Church of Christ, the uh, Interreligious Network for Worker Solidarity. Folks don't want to for people to be able to actually take time off to care for their families. Now we have a whole bunch of folks 
all up in arms and so happy about the pro-life movement now. But you can't tell me you pro-life if you won't let me care for my family, if you won't let me have paid leave. So it's things like that. It's being able to have a system of taxation that is not uh, bearing the brunt on middle class people and even black people. When we look at the, 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 uh, the extreme racial wealth gap, we have the opportunity right now, and scripture points us in that direction, to recreate, to do something different. This, this COVID experience for us can be for us our new biblical debt jubilee where we recognize that we have to do right by the black farmers and hold Secretary Vilsack and President Biden accountable for the fact that they still have not actually done right and done what the Pickford lawsuit said that they were going to do. They need to cancel the debt of the historic Pickford black farmers. Yes. They need to give them direct payments. And quite honestly, they need to give the land back because the U.S. has stolen land. Reverend so, Hammond, so Reverend Hammond, you know, I, I knew that when I got you on this microphone that you go tear it up. So thank you so much. And you have your daughter here with us. I do have my daughter here with me. You know, we, we have a, a whole delegation from Greensboro, North Carolina, beloved community center led by Joyce and Reverend Nelson Johnson and my kids, both Kelly Hamlin Sullivan and Jackson Hamlin Sullivan are part of this delegation because we have to connect the youth and the elders. We, we can solve this together. We, we have, we have uh, 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 the creative minds. And you know that, Dr. Malvo, because you've always fought for young people. You've always fought for young adults. You fought for everybody. The question is where the campaign arose from. And when I was here, it was called Resurrection City. And I just wanted to pick up on that theme for a moment because the history and the context of Reverend Barber's Poor People's Campaign is so important. We were going back to December 1967, and I remember the story vividly. Dr. King was with Ralph Abernathy, uh, and he was touring a number of schools dealing with the issue of desegregation in the hard South. And there were a group of kids. There were a group of kids, and they were set for lunch. And the teacher took out a package of crackers and several apples, and then divided up the apples, and each kid got a quarter of an apple and four crackers. And King actually had to leave the school. He left in tears. He went back to his hotel and was thinking, my goodness, what does it mean to desegregate? <laughs> desegregate a lunch counter if you can't afford the price of the hamburger and began to come about and think about the melding and can you have an egalitarian society? Can you have civil or human rights without economic rights? Economic rights are at the bottom of it. In fact, that's why you have no rights without economic rights. And that means you have no rights without voting rights. And that's why Reverend Barber has been so darn effective as he's across the country, much like Dr. King did. I was doing some research on Dr. King and found that in March of 1968, before he was assassinated, in a two-week period, he went to like 20 cities and gave like 30 speeches. And they were all around this issue of economic justice. He really was talking about this. These words have come out of favor as we've allowed 
stupidity, stupidity to come to the forefront. Uh, absolutely. And what he's really working for is what he calls, and people really should pick up his book, The Third Reconstruction. Oh, yes. Because he is picking up, he's in the inheritor of the mantle of Dr. King. And Dr. Well, King's last campaign, which was to attack those three pillars of capitalism, which were militarism, racism, and poverty. and poverty, the unequal distribution of wealth, all of that coalesced in December of 1969, 67, forgive me, when King actually announced that he was going to conduct a march on Washington to demand jobs, better homes, better education, better lives, ones that were livable. And this is exactly the campaign that Reverend Barber has picked well, up and know, been carrying throughout through the, country. the country. And my favorite King quote I must share, I have the audacity to believe. See, underline that word audacity. I have the audacity to believe that people everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, peace and freedom for their spirits. Now, at this time coming, Denise Coleman from Louisiana. But there are some others that are standing with her. Would you all come to the podium now? They live in a place called Cancer Alley. What? And they are refusing to quit fighting for lives. Greetings. I'm Denise Coleman, a native from New Orleans, Louisiana. I am here. I have survived. I am alive. And today I thrive. Why? because I was sentenced to a concurrent double life sentence. I served 38 years under the old law. That meant that I should have been out after serving the 30 years. And they kept me for another eight years. Why? Because they lost my file. How many more incarcerated are serving needless time because their files are lost? We are forgotten people. We are poor people. And we are suffering. While I was in prison, my mother died. My husband died. My daughter died. Had the prison system let me out when my time was up under the old law, under old policies and rules, I would have been there. I would have been there to see my daughter, my mother, That's right. my husband. They would not let me see her. She passed. And I could not see her when she died. Why? Because I was poor. I am here to tell you, incarcerated lives matter too. The Mississippi Parole Office did not tell me. Nine months had passed and I still didn't know. That's why I started organizing inside. That's why I came outside organizing. And that's why I stand with the Poor People's Campaign. I am resilient. We as a people are resilient and we won't be silent anymore. Yes. Now we're together. No. Not one no. step back. Now these two people that are coming, I know somebody says, well, every other state had one speaker. But let me tell you, these two people have literally faced death and fought against death. We had an issue with the buses. Would you all be kind enough to let each of them have a minute to tell why this campaign will not abandon the people in Cancer Alley? And we say that anybody that doesn't go to Cancer Alley doesn't deserve to sit at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Good afternoon. My name is Sharon Levine, and I'm from St. James, Louisiana, a little town in the middle of Cancer Alley. 
Cancer Alley is an 85-mile stretch between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, and I have 12 industries in my neighborhood within a 10-mile radius. My two members of my organization died with cancer. There's an area in St. James called Burden Lane. It's bombarded with two industries, and they are sandwiched in. The industries will not buy them out because they are black. They bought out the white neighbors, but not the black neighbors. We, our air is polluted, our water, we can't drink the water, and people have cancer, other illnesses, and we are dying. We need your help because we need help in St. James. We need help all through the, the corridor of Cancer Alley. Our politicians vote for industry to come in. They sacrifice our lives to make a profit. So we will not be silent anymore. anymore. Thank you. Hi, I'm so proud to be here. I'm from the adjoining parish in what's called Cancer Alley. Cancer Alley, worse than that, in their quest, I think, to commit genocide against the poor black people of that 80-mile strip, we have been de deemed a sacrificial zone. I want to say that in front of the world. I had to bring that to the attention of the people. Not only have they dubbed us Cancer Alley, they have actually officially said that we are a dispensable people. They came into our community in St. John and put this, this horrible chemical plant, uh, the DuPont Corporation along with the Japanese people, Danka, 1,500 uh, 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 feet, 1,500 feet away from an all-black elementary school. That ain't right. And they have, since our fight against them started in 2016, we've just been informed that they have actually increased. DuPont Danker has the audacity, the temerity. They, they are such... Uh, 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 cruel, awful people in terms in, in, in uh, seeking corporate profit that they have increased the poisons on that school of four to five hundred black children as of today. And my brother, we are not going to leave that alone. And we will not turn around in our fight. And yes! will not be silent. And we yes! thank you and Reverend Barber and his organization. Thank you very much. Black unemployment is perpetually twice that of white. It would take, according to United We Dream, surely 581 years for African Americans to reach income parity with whites. It would take until 2099 to reach parity in median wealth. It would take 150 years to close the black-white poverty wealth gap. And it would take 1,000. 664 years, 55 generations to end the home ownership gap. Why should a multiracial coalition support H.R. 40? That's right. Because as long as this country is allowed to establish a floor for African-American poverty that is so low, it lowers the ceiling for us all. The lower the floor, the lower the ceiling, and the measures that establish the white middle class are now obsolete. That's why most of the white middle class is at best, like all of us here, 
the working poor. Thank you, the my brother. The longer it takes to close the racial poverty gap, the longer it will to create a rising tide to lift all boats out of overall poverty. We ask you to contact your members of Congress to ask them to support H.R. 40. Yes, we, we won't, won't back, back down. down. We're out of time. I'd like to thank Katia Stitt, Program Director of WPFW, and the entire team from our Washington, D.C. sister station, WPFW, who organized Pacifica's coverage of the event. I would like to thank our assistant producer and also thanks, of course, to our board op. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and y'all please stay well and safe.